Welcome to Vineyard Hopkinton. As we follow Jesus together, we experience the Holy Spirit, create a multicultural community, and pursue kingdom of God justice. Uh, It's great to be back here at Vineyard Hopkinton. I've been up here now three times since uh, 2022 began, so I'm excited to be back here sharing with you all once again. So a little bit about me before we start. If you don't know me, my name is Nate Tchaikowski. I have been in ministry for six years, um, working as an assistant pastor and a youth pastor at two different vineyard churches in New Haven, Connecticut. Um, And yeah, I am someone who very much like this church, has a real heart for seeing God move in this region, in New England, and seeing God change and transform lives. And so I'm really excited um, to be here and be here sharing with a church that shares my heart for wanting to see that happen. Now, on top of my six years of ministry, over the last 10 years of my life, in some capacity, I've, I've also worked professionally as a graphic designer. And as a graphic designer, one of the things that I have spent a lot of time um, looking about, thinking at, is branding and logo design. I love a good logo design. It does something to my soul when I see a good logo. Um, And so it may sound a little bit strange. It might sound a little bit weird. But this morning, I hope you bear with me, we're going to start with a lesson from corporate branding. So specifically, what we're going to do here is we're going to look at two big competitors of one another and how they've taken very different approaches to their branding over the course of time. So the first of these two is, we can throw that first one up on the screen, is Coca-Cola. This is a logo that I guarantee all of you have seen in your life. Famous, red and white, the well-drawn script. They've used this logo in basically this same form since 1941. So since World War II, they have been using this logo to sell their product. Now, they've done a few things to change it. They've made minor alterations along the way, but more or less, they've been using this logo since 1941. Now, their chief competitor, which all of you know, is Pepsi, has a very different story. So Pepsi actually began with this logo. Very different. Most of you probably do not recognize this logo whatsoever, but this is how Pepsi began. And a few years later, they changed it to this logo. And a few years after that, they changed it to this logo. And shortly after that, they actually changed it to this logo. This is actually my favorite, I think, iteration of the Pepsi logo, um, which is going to change drastically over the next few logos that I'm going to show you. So shortly after this, they decided to change it to this. They placed it in a bottle cap with red and blue to give it a little bit more differentiation, probably from the Coca-Cola logo itself. But then they decided to change it some more, and they went to this logo. And so the beginning of the most recognizable element of the Pepsi brand, which they call the Pepsi Globe, was actually originally just a bottle cap. But then it changed to this logo, which was then minorly altered to this logo, which then changed to this logo. They started moving some things around. They took Pepsi out of the globe. Um, But then they decided to change it to this logo which if you grew up in the 90s like me, you probably saw quite a bit of. But then they made some minor alterations and changed it to this logo, which then in the 2000s changed to this logo, which then in the later 2000s made a drastic change and went to this. And then more recently, they did this to the logo. So made some minor alterations. We were joking in the first service that even though all they did was just make some sizing a little bit differently and removing the outline around the globe, Some ad agency somewhere got paid a lot of money to do this. 
Now, I show you all of this for the reason that there are some things that just last a significantly longer time. The Coke logo has had staying power. It's worked, and it's worked across many cultures. And yet the Pepsi, Pepsi has not been able to find the same level of ownable brand that would work over time and over generations. And so this morning, as we start, I want to just introduce the idea, something that we're going to think about today, is that there are just some things that stand the test of time. And specifically, what I want to talk about this morning is that there are just some ways in doing ministry, in following Jesus, that stand the test of time. There are some ways that people have been doing ministry and following Jesus over centuries that stand the test of time. And I think in this season of church life, in this next 10 years of doing church, I think it's important for us to return to a lot of those things that have had staying power for generations, for centuries, and for millennia. And so as we get into that today, I want to pray for us. So let's pray. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. We invite you to come and meet us here in this space. Lord, we invite you to come speak to us today. And God, I, I ask that you would speak to everyone in here. Um, God, will you use my words to speak to people? Will you use worship to speak to people? Will you use ministry time to speak to, to people? Will you use the relationships in this room to speak to people today? God, we want um, this church service today to be about what you want to do in this space. And so we give it to you, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. And I want to give everyone in, uh, in this space a chance for you to pray for God to speak to you in the way that you're looking to be, uh, looking to hear from God today. So I'm going to give you a few moments for you to ask God to speak to you in the way that you're looking for. Yeah, Jesus, will you speak to us here? Lord, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for today. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. So on top of my uh, interest in corporate branding, one of the things that I have also spent a lot of time thinking about recently is the future of what church is going to look like, especially in the U.S. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed more and more and more recently is that there are so many people, when they start thinking about that, they just get drawn to that next thing. The next thing that seems flashy, the next thing that seems interesting, the next thing that they feel like might be something that could draw a crowd in to a space. Um, I recently was at this conference in Florida, and while we were there, I noticed that there were just so many vendors trying to sell things to the people who are coming to the conference. This is a large church conference. There's a ton of pastors, and there are just an unbelievable amount of tables of people selling things to church people. 
And I don't think I've ever had a moment before where I just wanted to like follow Jesus and just flipping over tables because it just, it's something in my spirit that didn't quite sit right with this many things being sold to people. But one of the things I just felt like the Holy Spirit was pointing out and drawing my attention to is that there are a lot of people who are looking for that secret formula. They're looking for that one thing they could just plug into their church or their ministry or their life to just solve that problem. And I think for a lot of people um, who were at that conference looking for that silver bullet thing, what they were really trying to do was find that one thing that was just going to bring a bunch of people to their church. And while that's good in all, that really isn't the mission that Jesus has given us, his people, and us, the church. Now, it's good for us to bring people in. And certainly, as we're praying for people to come to Easter, to encounter Jesus, to have their lives changed and transformed, we want people to come into the church building. We definitely want that, and we want a vibrant church community. But the mission that Jesus gives his people is not just to get a bunch of people to sit in church, right? The mission is to partner with Jesus to see people's lives changed and transformed as they encounter him and as they come to know and love him. And quite frankly, I think in this season, it's important for us to get back to remembering that that is our mission in our, in our job as the church here, especially in the U.S. Because our hope is to see the kingdom of God, Jesus' way, way spread. One of the ways that I like to think about this is as a garden spreading. Is anyone here a gardener? Does anyone like an avid gardener here? Okay, a few people. Um, when, when I was growing up, my grandfather used to grow these giant tomatoes. He was an avid gardener, and that really had an effect on me as a young child. But one of the things, if you've ever tried to grow a garden, you know that the wilderness, the wild, is always trying to get in. Like, there are always things that are just falling from the sky, getting in your garden, and growing some weed that you do not want. And if we think about what a garden truly is, it is a way that we as people are able to create an ordered version of nature. And the disordered nature is always trying to get in and ruin the order that we're creating. But in the kingdom of God spreading, it isn't quite like the wilderness coming in and overtaking the garden. It's more like the garden spreading out and overtaking the wilderness and introducing the order, the way of Jesus to the world, the wild world around us. And so we hope to do that. And as we hope to do that as the people of God, I do believe that God is calling us back to focusing on uh, and doing what committed followers of Jesus have been doing for a really long time, which is proclaiming and demonstrating the power and the love of God. So what I want to do here today, as we get into all of these things, um, is I want to read a passage of scripture that many of you are familiar with. It's from um, the, the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, um, and we're reading verses 1 through 11. Now, if you've been around church for any length of time, you are familiar with this passage. It's something that you have heard before. But my challenge is, as we get into this passage today, I want you to approach it with as fresh eyes as possible. Um, Because what I want to do is I really want to focus on how people in this passage respond to the power and love of God being demonstrated in their midst. So let me read this passage um, for us, and then we'll start to unpack it together. 
And so John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here, a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who would later betray him, objected. Why was this perfume sold Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As the keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So there's a lot of things going on here, and I want to break down what is happening. So first and foremost, in these first two verses, we see that this family that experienced the power and love of God is throwing a party to celebrate that demonstration of power and love. So in the previous chapter, in John chapter 11, Jesus finds out that Lazarus is really sick. And in fact, he has the sense that Lazarus is going to die. And so what he does is he instructs his disciples that they are going to go and raise Lazarus from the dead. Um, And as they do that, as Jesus draws near to this family in, in Bethany, which is a town outside of Jerusalem that had just lost their brother, Jesus does something that is quite famous, where he weeps. This is the shortest verse in the Bible that people often talk about, Jesus wept. Um, And oftentimes there is some discussion about why Jesus wept. Some people would say that Jesus weeps because his friend Lazarus had died. Um, But the problem from my reading of the Gospel of John, the problem that I have with that is that Jesus knew that he was going to Bethany for the purpose of raising Lazarus from the dead. And so I don't think Jesus was weeping because Lazarus died. From my reading, Jesus starts to weep when he sees Lazarus' sister Mary and the people who had come to mourn with Mary weeping. That Jesus, in love, draws near to this family to comfort and grieve with them. And then, in the power and love of God, raise their brother Lazarus from the dead. And this is significant for a number of reasons. One, it's a very public spectacle that Jesus did. If you you really read through the, uh, the Gospels, you realize that a lot of the miracles that Jesus did were actually really subtle. Um, In the Gospel of John, there are seven recorded miracles. And unless you are really paying attention to the first six, you may not have realized that a miracle had happened at all. Right at the wedding of Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. Unless you were really paying attention, one of the servants who was filling the jugs with water, you did not know a miracle happened in your midst. Right? Unless you were really paying attention when Jesus fed the 5,000, you did not know that a miracle happened in your midst. These were subtle miracles that Jesus did. 
They were often away from the public eye. And a lot of times, if he was going to do something that would have been more of a spectacle, he would bring the person out of the town to heal that person. But in this moment, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in a really public way so that a lot of people were paying attention to it and the news of it was spreading all over the area. And so this significant event where Jesus not only drew, new, drew, draw near, draw, uh, drew near to this family in love, but also in power, the news of that was spreading throughout the region. And that's where we enter into this story. And so this family is celebrating this demonstration of the power and the love of God in their lives. And this isn't the point of today's sermon, but I do think an important question for us to ask ourselves um, in, when was the last time that we truly celebrated the power and the love of God in our lives? It's just a question to think about. So what I want to do today, though, is I want to specifically look at the reactions of people to this demonstration of the power and the love of God. And there are four distinct reactions from four different people or groups here in this passage. And the first of these reactions is the very famous thing that Mary does to Jesus here. So in verse 3, we see her reaction, and I'm going to read it for us. It says, Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it out on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. And so Mary responds to the power and love of God that was demonstrated by reflecting the love of Jesus back to him. So Mary does this beautiful act. In her response to the power and love of God, she responds in beautiful, sacrificial love. Um, and this act of love has captivated and stirred followers of Jesus and readers of the Bible for centuries. It's an extravagant, sacrificial act of worship that was done out of genuine love and thankfulness, even though she may get criticized for doing it. Right? And so oftentimes when you might hear a preacher or a pastor or someone talk about demonstrating the power and the love of God, we can think about doing that in ministry, right? We proclaim the power and love of God as we preach or we talk about scripture, and then we go pray for people and hope to see God use and move in power and in love and see people get healed, people get saved, or whatever it is. And that is true, and that is important, but we also move in love by reflecting the love of God back to him in genuine worship and also showing that love to other people. This is how we demonstrate both the power and love of God that Jesus has extended to us. So it's not just something that we do in ministry. It's something that we do with our lives. But this is just the first of the four responses. As we continue to make our way through this passage, we see the next response, which comes from Judas. And I'll read it once more. It says, but one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. He said, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put inside. And so while Mary responded by reflecting the love of Jesus back to him, Judas responds with envy. Now, I think the danger in reading this is that we can write this off that this is just Judas, the evil betrayer of Jesus. But Judas, in a lot of ways, is responding in a very human way. 
And as human beings ourselves, we have to pay attention to how he responds. So the first thing that I want to point out here is that this is probably not the first time that this happened. This is probably at least the second time that something like this happened before Jesus' disciples. And so Matthew and Mark both tell um, the same story of what we just read um, in, the, in the Gospel of John, of Mary anointing Jesus' feet um, at Bethany. But Luke tells a very similar story that seems to be a different event, where an unnamed woman comes and uh, washes Jesus' feet with her tears. She dries them with her hair and uh, she anoints his feet with perfume. And in very much the same way, she gets criticized by the people um, who were there, specifically the religious leaders that were present. And here, Judas actually reflects what those people did in this other story when he sees this happen probably for at least the second time in Jesus's ministry. And so Judas, this man who as much as we know about him being the one who betrays Jesus, was also someone who had left everything to follow Jesus. And in seeing this uh, beautiful act of deep connection with this person that he left everything to follow, it's likely that Judas was feeling something that we might feel, which is envy. I think in my time in ministry, in my time following Jesus, I've noticed that it can be really easy for us to become envious of people who are connecting to Jesus at a really deep level at some point in their life. When I was in college, my friend Jimmy just had this encounter with Jesus that changed his life. And he just fell madly in love with Jesus. And people saw the transformation that happened in his life. And people were drawn to that transformation. And people were drawn to the genuine and authentic way that he was loving and worshiping Jesus. And as terrible as it is, and as much as I hate to say it, I began to feel envy because I wanted that genuine, authentic, passionate love in Jesus in my life. And I also, I mean, if I'm being honest, I wanted people recognizing it in me too. Right? Judas was acting very much in the way that human beings often act in situations like this. It's easy to get envious. I want to look at the next group that reacts to this passage here, which is the crowd. And we can read that in verse 9. So in verse 9, it says, Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he laid, who he raised from the dead. And so Mary responded by reflecting the love of Jesus back to him. Judas responded with envy, and the crowd responded by drawing near. And oftentimes when the power of God is poured out, when the power of God is manifested and demonstrated, people are fascinated by it, and they flock to see it, Right? People who are looking for real power will go to see it. People who feel like that has been missing from their lives of faith and ministry will be interested and want to go to see it. People who are interested in a spiritual reality will be interested enough to go and see it. People who are looking for truth will probably go and see the real, want to go and see the real power of God being poured out. People who are looking for more out of life may be interested in seeing 
a demonstration of the power of God being poured out. Now, I mean, I don't have data to back this up in any certain way, but I just think in this moment that we find ourselves in, coming out of COVID, coming out of the last few years, it just feels like in the people that I know and the people that I'm talking to, there seems to be a greater hunger for seeing the power of God move in our midst than we ever had before. I'm just hearing more people talk about it, hearing more people want that and more people wanting to commit to pray for that than I've ever seen in my short six-year ministry career. And I think that's really encouraging, but I think it also should tell us a lot about the hunger of the culture that we now find ourselves in, right? It wasn't just the ancient Near Eastern culture where a crowd would be drawn to see the power of God. I think our culture, where we are, people from where we are would also be interested in investigating a real outpouring of the power of God in their midst. So I want to look at the last of these groups um, that react to the demonstration of the power and the love of God, and that is the religious leaders. And so we can find how they react here in verses 10 and 11, and I'll read it. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And so... Mary responds by reflecting the love of Jesus back to him. Judas responds with envy. The crowds respond by drawing near. And the Pharisees respond with contempt. I mean, it's insane what the religious leaders are trying to do here. They're literally plotting and conspiring to kill a man because of the power and the love of God being demonstrated, which is insane. Especially for religious leaders who would believe that that would be a bad thing to do. Now, the thing that I think is also dangerous here, just like as we read about Judas in this passage, is we can write the Pharisees off really easily as this religious sect that just existed to be the enemies of Jesus. But if we really get into the histories, uh, the history of these religious leaders, we see that their particular group began with seemingly noble purposes. They wanted to maintain and and preserve the faith of their forefathers. And they wanted to keep it from being destroyed from the influence of Greek religion and Greek culture. And that's a seemingly, seemingly noble cause to begin. And so they sought to do this by figuring out what the best beliefs were and what the best practices of those beliefs were to avoid what had happened to the Jewish people in the past. However, in their search for proper, quote-unquote, orthodox beliefs, their religion over time became dead. And the life that maybe once was in it was drained from it. Jesus pronounces many woes of this group in the Gospels. I think one of the most telling from those is when Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. That they are these beautiful structures that look great, that there's something to behold but on the inside, they're nothing but houses for dead people's bones. In, 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 uh, in people who study religion and faith, they'll talk about something called dead orthodoxy, um, which, is, um, which is defined a number of different ways. Um, but one of the best definitions that I found of it was this, correct, right, or good beliefs without transformation, right practices, right feeling towards others, zeal, or the leading of the Holy Spirit in an individual or a church. And so in their hunt for the best and most right beliefs, their orthodoxy became dead. Um, 
The famous theologian and British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones often wrote and spoke about dead orthodoxy. And I wanted to grab a really good quote for all of you this morning from some of the things that he said, but Martin Lloyd-Jones is incredibly wordy. So it wouldn't be really helpful if I just took a quote out of context for all of you. Um, But I did find this summary from someone else of things that he wrote. And that summary was simply that dead orthodoxy is the greatest hindrance to revival. So now that we've looked at these four, these four reactions, these four different reactions from these four people and groups, what I want to do is I want us to put it all together. As we put it all together, I think we have to, uh, we have to know and we have to understand that, that this is true, that it matters how we respond to the power and the love of God. And that matters both for us individually as someone who follows Jesus and also as a body of believers as a church. As we work to a close, I want to invite the worship team to come up. And so so I think there's a lot of challenges for us in this. One, that if we really study this passage and as we really think about it, um, it can be really easy for us to fall into the way of envy or the way of contempt, just like Judas or the Pharisees, right? We're also people who want right beliefs. We're also people that want to have the best practices. And if we're not careful, we also can fall into some form of dead orthodoxy where we might have beliefs, but that life in our faith and the practice of our faith and in our ministry might be drained from that. And honestly, dead orthodoxy is not going to draw a crowd. And there's no silver bullet. There's no single thing. There's nothing that a vendor could sell us that could make dead orthodoxy draw a crowd. It just isn't going to work. And even if they do draw a crowd, it's not going to last. It's not going to have staying power. And it can be really easy for us to be envious when we see other people connecting to the power and the love of God like we see here with Judas being envious of Mary. But in the same way, that is being birthed not out of a sense of the abundant life that Jesus wants to lead us into, the way of Jesus, the way of the kingdom. Instead, that is birthed out of operating out of a place of scarcity. The kingdom of God is about abundance. These kingdoms where we live here are about scarcity. And so when we operate out of envy, it's like we're operating out of, there's only a certain amount of power and love of God that God wants to give to people. And you have to be the lucky one, one of the lucky ones who receive it or not. And that's just not the way of Jesus. Jesus wants to pour out his spirit on his people, right? That is who God is. He's a God of abundance. And the more that we operate in the way of the Pharisees or in the way of Judas here, the more that we're actually operating not in the way of spreading the garden, but actually is the wilderness that would take the garden from us. So I think our challenge today is to respond in the same way that this family that experienced the power and love of God did. To celebrate the power and love of God and to invite others into it. And as followers of Jesus, we get to go and do what Jesus did. And Jesus did proclaim and demonstrate the power and love of God. And so we get to follow Jesus in doing that, and we get to follow this family in the way that they celebrated that. And honestly, I think in doing that, 
in genuinely reflecting the love of God back to him and in proclaiming and demonstrating the love of God both in our ministry and in our lives as we do that, that is going to be really interesting to a lot of people. Um, as someone who is a youth pastor, I've spent a lot of time studying this next generation, um, which is traditionally at least called Generation Z. And one of the things about Generation Z is they're just not really wowed by that next big thing or the big show. They just aren't wowed by it. It doesn't impress them. They aren't looking for that. I think in a lot of ways, they're a generation who has been starved of real, authentic connections. And there are generations that's, that is longing to see real things. And honestly, we have that. As the people of God, we have that. We have the spirit of God. We have the love of God. And we have the power of God extended to us and that we can reflect. And I think the more that we operate like Mary, as we experience the power and love of God, we genuinely reflect that power and love of God in genuine and authentic worship, the more that that will appear beautiful and inviting to this generation. And so we don't do it to draw a crowd. We do it because we want to see people changed by the power and love of God. We want to see those people that Stephen is inviting you all to bring to Easter, have their lives completely transformed by a God who loves them and wants to operate in power. But I think the more that we genuinely move in that way, the more that the crowd will be drawn to the authenticity of the love and the God that is moving in our midst. That's what I want for us. And so we're going to go back into worship. We're going to sing a few songs. We'll come back and do ministry time. But as we go back into worship here, my challenge for you today is to reflect the power and love of God in genuine worship the way that Mary worshiped Jesus in this passage. Mm -hmm. 